0: If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it.
1: Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. And $30 off your first box when you go to WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. That's WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. Or you can use promo code Pantsuit at checkout. Your iTunes reviews help Pantsuit Politics move up the rankings, which spreads our love of nuance far and wide. Plus, being called the Oprah's of nuance made my life. So please take a few minutes and leave a review by searching Pantsuit Politics in the podcast app and clicking the reviews tab. In a relatively calm week by Trump administration standards, we have learned a lot about the people occupying the administration.
0: Today we discuss Ivanka's role, the Mike Pence marriage controversy, and listener feedback. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Briefcase, and and just in case your feeds went a little crazy this week, we were re-indexing the show, and I have some exciting news. The entirety of the Pantsuit Politics archive is now available on iTunes, which means you can go back and listen to our very first episode. Beth, have you done that recently?
0: No, and I don't really want to. It makes me kind of anxious (laughs) hearing you talk about that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: it's like totally adorable and
0: hilarious i would imagine
1: yeah it's we uh i mean
0: it's it's
1: not terrible it's a learning curve y'all it's podcasting
0: is a learning curve yeah
1: so um if you but there were a lot of really good discussions sort of evergreen discussions at the beginning of our show about abortion and gun control and a lot of things that I'm pretty proud of. So those were kind of nice to go back and listen to. So if you're, you know, just a hardcore pantsuit politics listener and need more pantsuit politics in your life, you now have that available to you.
0: Well, thank you for doing that, Sarah. Yeah, I was looking at our download numbers and thought, what is happening? And then I realized it's because everybody's phones went bananas on them.
1: Yeah. So sorry about that. But I think that when you go back and listen to our first episode, you'll see that it was worth it just for the pure entertainment value.
0: So we're going to talk today about Ivanka Trump, which is something that we've every episode been like, oh, we need to talk about Ivanka. And then we sort of run out of time. Ivanka is now officially an employee of the United States government. She is an unpaid employee of the United States government, but she is going to have some security clearance. She has an office in the West Wing and she has the title of special assistant to the president. Your thoughts, Sarah?
1: Um, I don't like Ivanka, so I should put that out there first and foremost. I find her to be a privileged, out-of-touch, faux-feminist. How's that for nuance? So, but, here's my nuance on this. I think, in reality, there is a long history of presidents without wives or with wives unwilling to fulfill what we have historically seen as first lady duties. I think that's what we have in Melania Trump. I don't think she has any interest in being an active first lady for reasons I won't pretend to understand. And I think that Ivanka is going to fulfill a lot of those roles, which is fine. My problem is that I think it's going to go beyond that. I think that the family will continue to profit from... Trump's presidency. They have shown no willingness really to um, separate themselves or much less to, to make sure they're not profiting, much less make sure there's no appearance of profiting. And so I think that they'll probably continue to do that. I think this is just one step closer to tying their interest as the Trump family into the power found within the presidency, which is what really bothers me about it. But I, at the same time, like I said, I do see. I think there is historical precedents for daughters fulfilling these roles, and I'm sure Chelsea would have done something similar. The reason I think it's different is because I think the Clinton's fa- Clinton family's long history of public service and Chelsea serving on the nonprofit foundations um, positioning is not equivalent to Miss. I wore my bracelet on my sixty interview, sixty Minutes interviews, or go buy my dress I wore at the RNC speech. Like it's just. It's different. And that's what bothers me about it. So that's where I'm on, Ivanka.
0: I am happy that she put out a statement acknowledging the applicability of the ethics rules to her. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I don't disagree with you about the family's blatant profit from Trump's presidency, but I think that it's I think it's a move towards some sanity for Ivanka to say, I hear that concern. And so I'm going to subject myself to these rules because the truth is she was going to be advising him in this capacity, whether anyone acknowledged it or not. So I'm glad that they're acknowledging it. And I think that's important. I I think that it's kind of ridiculous that we're all losing our minds about Ivanka in the midst of everything else going on. And if we're going to lose our minds about something, let's do it about Jared Kushner, whose title is not special assistant to the president, but senior advisor to the president. If you want to talk about qualification and the commingling of interests, I think that's a more concerning point of focus than. Oh, I don't like Ivanka him taking this on. <laughs> yeah. I don't like him at all. It's just sort of in, Trump, in the scope of Trump world. I do feel like Ivanka tries to be more of a stabilizing force than anyone else. And it bugs me to read so much online about her qualifications, because there is a place for just trusted advisors around any leader of anything. And the White House seems to have a big gap in calm, rational figures willing to exercise good judgment. Now, does Ivanka always meet that standard? I'm sure not. But she's not, uh, you know, I just don't think that she's the most draconian figure in this um, novel. And this doesn't bother me. Of all the things, this just doesn't bother me.
1: I mean, I guess the problem is if you see the world, if you see the Trump administration as a, um, if, if the spectrum of what to be upset about is based on, is sort of set by their behavior or is an objective spectrum, right? So if your spectrum is objective and you just think that there are certain behaviors that shouldn't be violated, then there is plenty to be upset with about Ivanka. If your spectrum is set by the Trump administration itself, then, yeah, in the presence of Steve Bannon, she's not that big of a deal. Do you see what I'm saying? But, like, I think that it just depends on how you think about ethics within the White House. And if you're just, well, we have to live in the Trump administration's world where we can't be upset over what anywhere else would be a clear ethics
0: violation— I don't think this would be an, a clear ethics violation anywhere else in the world. I think this is more honest than most families occupying the White House about what a person is doing. I think no, there's I a, disagree. I think I disagree. there's a long history of spouses and family members exercising enormous influence over the president. And so she's but she's, it's she's just puppet. calling it what it
1: is. I think if. She did not work for his business and they did not make money off their connections and their name. Yes, that would be true when you because but you cannot compare them to other families because they have no history of public service and all they have a history of is profiting. And so I think that that's the they're just different. It's you can't compare them to what other families did. I mean, because you have such a long history of families with. Decades of public service and multi-generations of politicians and leaders, and I just don't think it's the same thing because they bring this very complex web of corporate interest to the table, and to it, we ignore that and pretend like they're the, like the Clintons
0: or the Bushes at our peril, I think. I think that people who bring decades of public service also bring a complex web of interest And I don't think we're ever going to solve the financial entanglement of the Trumps, which I agree is an enormous problem by not being more forthright about these things, by not having family members subjected to these rules. I mean, in some ways, I think, you know, every single one of them ought to be an employee of the government, an unpaid government employee, so that they're all subject to the requirements imposed on other federal workers. If they're going to, in fact, be this close to the president, which they are, then let's call it what it is and oversee it accordingly.
1: Unfortunately, that's assuming they're going to follow the rules. I mean, Kellyanne violated the rules and nothing happened.
0: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. com You want to know another thing that I'm not worked up about? Mike Pence's marriage. The yeah, why is this
1: a controversy?
0: People don't hang out with enough
1: evangelicals if they're worried about this marriage, I'll be honest.
0: The Washington Post has a profile on Karen Pence, Mike Pence's wife. And in it, the Post notes that Mike Pence does not have meals alone with other women or attend events where alcohol is served without Karen with him. And the internet has thoughts on that. (laughs) And I'll tell you why it doesn't. I mean, do I like that attitude generally? Nope. Would I choose that for my marriage? Absolutely not. And I will do everything that I can to raise children who don't make those choices in their marriage either. But this is just none of my business. And I feel like it's the slipperiest of slopes. If you start to say, how can Mike Pence do his job if he imposes this kind of restrictions on himself? Then doesn't that take us into how could a person who prays seven times a day do the job? Or how could an atheist do the job because they don't have a a faith structure supporting them through hard times? Or How could a transgender person be the vice president because other foreign leaders might not understand that? I mean, I just feel like it takes us down a path of intrusiveness into people's personal choices that we don't want to go down. Also, that's
1: ridiculous. Like there hasn't been a long history of presidents doing the job while they were cheating on their wives nonstop.
0: Yeah, there's just a point at which I think after a person is elected, I don't know. They just I think they can do their thing. I just think this it shows, like
1: I said, I think that people are offended because they don't. Be, if you have never been in an evangelical setting where people have these views on marriage, then yes, it would probably be pretty off-putting and shocking. But this is not abnormal. I know a lot of people that feel this way about marriage and who treat their marriage similarly. And whatever, Godspeed. It's not how my marriage works. But I don't spend a lot of time. I don't think anybody understands anybody else's marriage. I don't understand my best friend's marriage. To think that you would understand somebody's marriage through a One Washington Post interview is absurd.
0: We don't understand our own marriages some days, right? I mean, it's just a, it's a personal, private, ever-changing dynamic between a couple and, and I, I get that Mike Pence's entire history as a public official creates concern about his feeling about women generally. I get it. But th- this is this is who the guy is and he hasn't hidden it from us. And I don't think I think his personal practices between himself and his wife are the, the least of our concerns in that regard. Yeah. Moving on. Senate Intelligence Committee. Bravo. They have been acting yeah. like adults. You found
1: some adults last week. We we were desperate for you to find some adults and we found some.
0: So Senators Burr and Warner are a little bit rubbing it in the house's face, right? That they're the adults. Like they're very much. Well, taking, it's not hard the, the way moment. Munez is behaving. Jesus, it's not. But they have pledged a full investigation. It looks like they are reviewing carefully thousands of pages of documents. They have twenty witnesses lined up to testify. They have said, without any hesitation, that they will use the power of subpoena in their investigation. And I think it's good. And I think it's exactly what you know, we want from these intelligence committees. So hooray. We know that the Trump administration has been busy in other ways. So we'll talk in depth next week about the regulatory changes that happened. We don't want to give them short shrift and we don't want to miss the Friday feedback.
1: Yeah, we got lots of good feedback this week. So Bryn, the guiding North Star of our podcast. Emailed us with a really great question after our empathy deficit episode, which was, how can we possibly empathize with everyone? And he talked about um, some of the Trump supporters who have been profiled on MSNBC and other places for feeling like they let down and that they trusted him not to do so. They thought he wouldn't do certain things. And now they're so upset that he is, in fact, doing those things. And he's in it. I find myself constantly caught in this catch 22 where I want to empathize with Trump supporters who feel betrayed while at the same time fighting back the urge to just scream. We told you so over and over again. So is it possible to empathize with everyone? I don't think that's the standard.
0: I guess no, that's I my answer.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, I, you know, I was listening to one of our beginning episodes and, and we were talking about. It was a new stories we don't care about when we were talking about like stuff like Caitlyn Jenner back in good old 2015. Oh, 2015. You were so quaint. Play. You were adorable. <laughs> um, and, you know, the point we made is it's, there's not a finite amount. You know, you're not going to run out. The stronger you flex those empathy muscles, the they, the better they get. So or the more you flex, the stronger they get. And I think that both things can be true you can empathize with someone and be incredibly frustrated with the behavior that put them in the situation with which you empathize. Um, I do it with my children all the time. So I think that you you don't have to pick. You don't have to pick. And if you don't feel empathy for somebody in that moment, that's okay too. It's not a legal requirement. It's just sort of a spiritual exercise to think through the impact of these news stories and the people that still exist in these lives after the cameras have turned off.
0: And I, you know, one of the things that Brent asked is how we translate empathy to policy, and I think the answer is sometimes we don't. Sometimes empathy wouldn't make for good policy, and I don't think either of us thinks that we should be trying to legislate that everyone feel compassion for one another. You, you just don't get it done that way. I think it's no. Than- I mean,
1: good policy comes from the policy makers empathizing, but it's not about forcing people to empathize. You know. When we understand everyone's perspective and where they're coming from and what motivates them, yeah, that can inform great policy. But as far as requiring people to do that, I know that's not going to get us nowhere fast.
0: It can inform great policy. It can also inform really divergent perspectives on what constitutes great policy. You know, I don't think empathy leads us down a single path. I feel like it's more of an exercise in conscientiousness. Like sometimes I'll have a thought about a person and I will think to myself, what an ugly, toxic thought that is. But I still have it, you know, mm-hmm. and as, so calling it out that way for me means, okay, I, I have that thought. I'm not going to beat myself up over it, but I'm also not going to go spread that thought to other people. I'm going to contain that one in myself, right? And I right. think that's more what this is about. So just, you know, knowing I'm watching this, I feel conflicted that's a level of awareness that helps heighten the debate. You, I don't think that means you have to feel any particular way or reach any particular inclusion conclusion because of that level of awareness. We also
1: had several listeners message us and ask like, it seems it, it seems as if there is a lot of room for compromise among moderate Republicans, Democrats, and even I don't know if the Freedom Caucus could get in on this and Paul Ryan with regards to health care. And whether we saw sort of that same possibility and opportunity, and how likely we thought that was.
0: <laughs> Beth, you want to start? I see that possibility and opportunity, and I think it is highly unlikely because now I think we are seeing that the cynical among us, what the cynical among us knew all along, which is that healthcare is a political football that people want to score points by passing around the field, but nobody wants accountability for actual action. Well, I will push back on that because Democrats did take accountability for that. They did. I I don't think Republicans are going to do that. I just don't. And, you know, one of the things that our listener Allison asked is which representatives could do across the aisle work on a major bill like that without having it be political suicide. The truth is, in the news environment in which we live, we just are going to have to elect people willing to commit political suicide. Mm. I think we're going to have to elect people willing to serve in the House in two-year terms and willing to serve in the Senate in six-year terms, because that's what it's going to take. I was reading a story about a woman, Julia Hahn, who is working with Steve Bannon in the White House. She was a Breitbart reporter, and I was reading about her history and some of her articles, and she is just a burn-it-down kind of woman. And she wrote so many incendiary pieces about Marco Rubio because of his work on the Gang of Eight with immigration reform. And I thought, you know what, there's always gonna be a Julia Hahn out there, there's always gonna be an Ann Coulter or a Sean Hannity or a Lawrence what's his name from M S N B C on the you know, on the other side, where people are gonna hold you to really pure visions of their ideology. And I think we just need to elect some people who say, Yeah, you can do that and if I lose my seat I do. We could also
1: stop giving those people such big microphones. I think Ted Koppel. Was it Ted Koppel that sat down with Sean Hannity and told him he was hurting America? Yes, he did. That's so true. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what John Stewart did on Crossfire that time. You're, her- you're hurting America. I mean, maybe that's the truth, too. I know those voices are entertaining, but dang. I mean, I guess that's what we're trying to do here on Pansy Politics is give voice to the people saying, hey, moderates, anybody out there? Anybody want to make a compromise? We like compromise. And I think there's more space to do that as a senator because. You have a bigger microphone. You don't you're not as um, there's even in the most ideologically pure states, there isn't as much. um, Well, there's no gerrymandering, for one thing. And so I think there's a little bit more space for people to do that. You know, John McCain is hated by a a huge proportion of the Republican base, and yet he still won.
0: So they have six year terms, too. They have that people don't have the short memory syndrome and they're not Mm -hmm. constantly running. So I I think that the opportunity is there. I just think the climate is one where we reward people not seeking it. And I was having a little discussion on Twitter with our listener, Eric, who thinks that, you know, we, we want people to be principled, but when they behave in principled ways, we call them ideologues and attack their partisanship. And I just don't think that a willingness to compromise detracts anything from your deeply held beliefs. I mean, I truly believe there are topics where the government does not have a role. But if Sarah and I were sitting next to each other in the United States Senate, I would give on some of those things because it's a big country and my principles aren't the only ones that matter. So having principled people who can be checks on one another, I think is really important. And I do think there's a place for the purest among us. But we don't have anybody seemingly right now willing to bridge that gap. And that's it's not that I think everyone should be a moderate
1: So, we also got several questions about moving from employer sponsored healthcare that we're going to try to get to in a future episode and maybe paint the picture of what we see if we did move away from employer sponsored healthcare. But I wanted to um, end this episode with a really great email we got from Megan. Uh, she read a New York Times article entitled A Great New Accidental Renaissance. And she found this great quote, it's early, but we may be experiencing a great awakening for the human values that under siege by dark side presidency, people are going inward to find something bigger than Trump and outward to limit the damage he inflicts on the country. And she said the use of verbiage human values struck a chord with me. I think we are still deciding as a collective species what it means to be human and what rights and values are included. I have been thinking recently about the difference between the definition of right and wrong and how we define human rights. In order to decide on the rights we all have as humans, a collective understanding and agreement of right and wrong needs to be reached. I had the thought that right and wrong were the same as rights, but I think they are distinct ideas that not, are not only connected but need to be approached in sequence. Uh, and it's so good, and it really spoke to me after re- finishing Becoming Wise by Krista Tibbett. I think that is a conversation she is really developing what does it mean to be human? Um, what does it mean to be human in our new technological age? And I think uh, Megan is the one that started our book club. And I think "Strangers in Our Strangers in Their Own Land" sort of addresses like what does it mean to be American? What are those values? And I think we are having those conversations. And I think that it is incredibly valuable. And I just love that quote and the idea that we're really working through these big questions as a species.
0: I think when you're thinking about what's humane, too, we have to remember that politics is one forum for that conversation but it cannot and should not be the only forum. We're so true. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Briefcase. Thank you to Morgan for becoming a new subscriber and Caitlin for her generous contribution. And thank you to all of you who support our podcast and particularly our all-stars, Melissa, Tracy, Tracy, Ashley, Audrey, Christine, Nicolette, Paige, Sydney, and Priya. And we will be back with you on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to
1: our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsuit Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics, or Instagram at Pantsupolitics. Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and Pantsuit Primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com or beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.